Am I on? Oh yeah. Guys, I have to mute myself because I've had situations where I thought I was muted and I was not muted. So I take the extra time just to make sure. Conversations, bathroom trips, all the things. So you know, you learn things as you go along. Hi, I am Amy Akatero. If you don't know me, I am the family pastor here at Living Word. Um, I am so excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, how is everyone doing? Good? Great. Well, my family, we have entered what I like to call the football zone. Okay, it's that time of year when our schedule is being taken over by practices and games, water is being chugged by the gallons, my car smells like something died in it. You know, football zone. My husband John, who is coaching at, um, at the high school, and my son Ben, who is a freshman player this year, they have whole conversations using words that I pretend to understand, like, O-line and H-back and RPO and the quarterback and the safety and snap your hips and move your feet and don't get pancaked or trucked. <laughs> what in the world? Listen, I am not new to the game of football. In fact, I used to watch it with my dad. While we would watch, I'd ask a million questions because I was super motivated because I wanted to have cred with football players in high school. But listen, my investment worked out because one year during Spirit Week, I think we have that picture, one year during Spirit Week, I was recruited to play Powder Puff. <laughs> Number nine, baby. I had the quarterback's jersey. Okay, that's funny. It was the 80s, you know. Um, but as much as I was around it as a kid, um, I did not fully experience the culture of football until John and I signed up our younger two boys for youth football. Anybody relate to youth football? They're like five or six-year-olds running around that look like bobbleheads because their helmets are so big on their heads. Coaches are yelling, is your mama carrying those pads for you? You better get those pads and start running. It's like, mom, give it to me, um. I think that some of the coaches take the idea that playing football is like going to war because they were telling their team of eight-year-olds, destroy the enemy! We're gonna destroy the enemy! So you discover that who your son's coach is um, really impacts how he experiences this culture. <laughs> That's why I had John sign up. His leader will help him interpret what is going on and instill values for better or for worse. Leadership. And so that brings us to our new series that we are going to dive into this morning. We are going to look at a young man named Titus who discovered about leadership in an intense culture on the island of Crete. And we are calling this amazing series Titus. Epic. Will you guys pray with me as we begin? 
God, we acknowledge that you are here with us. Would you in these moments, as we begin, would you please just um, help us to let go of all that may be in our hearts and minds? Would you help us to be open to hearing what you want to say to us this morning? Would you begin to give us eyes to see and ears to hear from your words? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Men. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Titus 1, chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. So the book of Titus is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus, and he was giving him the job of restoring order to a network of house churches that were on Crete. And so Crete is this large island, as you may know, off of the coast of Greece. So that's kind of where we're located. Okay, the culture there. It was notorious for treachery and greed. I was thinking Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Most of the men were mercenaries who gained, um, who used their violent skills to the highest bidder. That was their job. But also, there were strategic harbors that serviced cities all over. And from Paul's point of view, this was a great place to make a network of house churches. He saw something in this place in a different way than everybody else did. But somehow, so they had been there and they had started some of these house churches, um, but somehow these churches had come under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders who said they were Christians, but they were actually ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus to set things straight and this is the letter that gives those instructions. So we'll be unpacking that in the next couple of weeks. Titus 1, 1 through 3. So Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. So right off the bat in this letter, Paul gives a great summary of the gospel. Paul's message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life. The life of the new creation that is available starting now, right now, through Jesus the Messiah. This hope was promised a long time ago by the God who does not lie. Paul emphasized this for a really important reason. The problem in the Cretan churches was that they had assimilated their ideas of the Christian God with ideas about the Greek gods that they had grown up with. In fact, Zeus was a big one, particularly Zeus, right? Their even claim to fame was he was born on their island and they loved to tell stories and myths about he, how he seduced women and he lied to get, and he got away with it. <laughs> well, Paul wanted to be very clear that the God revealed through Jesus was totally different from Zeus. His basic character traits are faithfulness 
and truth. The Christian way of life will be about truth also, which was going to be a huge shift for the Cretans. So Titus has two tasks. One, to appoint new leaders. So Paul said, Titus, I need you to appoint new leaders. So Titus 1.5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So elders at this time were leaders. He was gathering groups of leaders for these house churches to help the house churches find the truth and grow in Jesus and follow him, okay? And so here's, he um, makes a list of kind of, who are we talking about? What kind of leaders are we talking about? Well, these leaders, as you'll see the list, are leaders that are in contradiction to the current culture. So these leaders are mature husbands or fathers whose way of life is different from the Cretan culture. They're known for faithfulness, integrity, total devotion to Jesus, self-control and generosity, both in their families and the community at large. They also needed to be able to teach the good news about Jesus because they were going to need to replace the corrupt leaders and set them straight in this culture. So um, we see in Titus 10 through 16, so here are the people that they were going to need to confront and set straight. They were many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. We'll talk about that. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets had said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Okay, so he's pretty clear there about how he feels about those guys. So, but let me, let me unpack for you who those of the circumcision are, actually. So he is not directly going after the Cretans who are unbelievers. He's actually talking very strongly about these, um, these uh, leaders that had come in and started to disrupt these other um, households of faith that he had set up. They, are, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans. Okay, so they're from Crete, but they're ethnically Jewish. And they said that they follow Jesus, but similar to the problems in Galatia, these people demanded that non-Jewish Christians. So if you were on Crete and you decided to follow Jesus, you weren't a Jew, this is who they were disrupting. They were putting these barriers on these non-Jewish 
Christians. They were saying that they had to be circumcised, that they had to follow the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to follow the Jewish Messiah. Do you hear the bias that they have? They've created barriers to Jesus because of their own bias and also their own pride. They're like, we know how to follow Jesus. We are born as a Jew, right? And so there's this bias and this pride and they're creating barriers for other people to follow Jesus. Paul was very against that. He was very serious about the disruption that that was doing in the house churches. He said that they were obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. And they are just in church leadership business to make money. Because if a house church would kind of accept somebody as their leader, they'd help provide for them, right? And then it would be a resource for that leader. These leaders claim to know God, but their Cretan way of life denies him. Did anyone think as we were reading through that, wow, Crete sounds an awful lot like our current culture? <laughs> Violence, deceit, low moral standards, leaders claiming to know God, but their lifestyle denies him. Me too, I was thinking that. I have a few observations from this to share with you. So one, maybe... God has allowed us to live in our Crete for a purpose. So just like there was a purpose for Titus to be in Crete at the time, maybe there is a purpose for us to be in our version of Crete at this time. Sometimes God puts us in particularly difficult positions because he knows where we are most needed. God puts the Christian in Crete because he knows Crete needs Christians. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order. Christians can erroneously think that God has give them, given them a mission and free license to work out that mission in the world as they see fit. That's a mistake. Because not unlike the ethnically Jewish Christians who, instead of helping people find and follow Jesus, they were creating barriers based on their own biases and pride. Tim Dearborn says, the God of mission has given his church to the world. It is not the church of God that has a mission in the world. You guys get the difference? But the God of mission who has a church in the world. The church is invited and privileged to participate in what God is doing. You are invited and privileged to participate in what God is doing in your family, in your community, where you go to work. Dr. David Moore says, in this critical hour, we need more missional leaders who understand the times and see their cultures and ministry settings with God's perspective. 
These prophetic leaders see with God's eyes and feel what he feels for our lost world. So before we start making a list of all the leaders that we have seen create barriers with their bias and their pride, I think we should pause. I needed to pause. What about me? What about us? As a Christian, have we ever made barriers based on our bias or our pride? The answer is yes to all of us. We all have. There's no escaping our bias and pride 100% of the time. That's why we need Jesus, amen? The point is that we need to be people who are not perfect, but we are people who are willing to see the truth. And instead of covering it up or denying it or defending it, we mourn and we repent and we surrender this to Jesus so he can change our heart because pride has no place in the mission of God. My second observation is maybe God has allowed us to live in our Crete, this Crete that we're in currently for process. In Philippians 2, we see Jesus as he took on the nature of a servant for the benefit of others. From this humble leadership mindset, he shows us how to love others, not transactionally. Like, if you do that, then I'll do that. If you do this, then I'll do that. But in a transformational way. And that equipped other people to obey God's goodwill and his purpose. Jesus refused. He refused to give his God-given position for personal gain. But instead, he leveraged everything he had. He leveraged his knowledge. He leveraged his power to benefit others. How can we be more like him? Despite the overwhelming darkness and injustice, physical pain and betrayal, Jesus showed the essential leadership quality of vision. He faithfully shared the hope of peace with God. He said, this is why we're doing what we're doing. He had vision, anchoring his heart as he endured the cross. He had vision. And so let's not forget the sending of his very own son to be made in human likeness speaks to God's desire to lead from this intimate place among us. He's a leader that is certain. He is certain of righteous victory because it's produced from love and truth. So darkness, false accusations, bias does not threaten our God or dissuade him because God is a sacrificial leader. He's willing to pay a great cost to rescue you, to rescue me, 
and to restore our relationship with him, with our families, with our communities, with the people all around us, a great cost. My last observation is, what if God allowed us to live in this Crete to fulfill his promise? At the beginning of this passage, Paul reminds us that we have hope in eternal life. By hope, Paul is not talking about a wish. We often use the word hope like this. I hope it's warm tomorrow. I hope the Seahawks win. (laughs) I do, I hope they win. We often use hope for our thin wishes about an uncertain and even unlikely future. Um, But guys, that's not how Paul used hope. Paul's hope, this is not a wish about the uncertain. This is a well-founded faith with a future orientation. Just like Jesus had vision as he endured the cross, hope is a well-founded faith with a future orientation. This is a knowledge of the truth looking forward. And how do we know that Paul had such a strong, solid, objective, powerful, life-changing concept of hope in mind? Because he said, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope, which catalyzes our Christian faith, into actions of love for others is based on the words of the God who never lies. That is what our hope is based on. God's truthfulness is absolutely critical to our hope. Our hope is as good as God's word. Our hope is not what we wish or dream. Our hope is what God has promised, and he never lies. Amen? Christian hope is not this virtue that originates with us. We don't muster it up. Hope in us begins with a solid, sure, unfailing promise of the never-lying God. Christian hope begins with God and what he says. Then, when we believe that, then when we take that in, then when we step towards that, that is when hope in us swells to receive and trust to look to what God says in coming for us in Christ. That is when hope is engaged. It is based on God not us. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we're living in times where cynicism reigns and hope seems to be all but gone. We've had a hard couple of weeks in our community. 
I've been feeling pretty desperate for hope when I watch our kids struggle. But you know that cynical point of view, you know that one that has the general inclination or disinclination to trust truth? You know that cynical um, point of view that doesn't trust others, especially supposed authorities? That cynicism that comes on to believe the worst in others and of the world altogether? In our world, cynicism is not only acceptable, but in some places it's expected. You might find yourself in conversations knowing how that goes. It's mainstream. It's even admired. It is increasingly in the air that we breathe, cynicism. But you know, cynicism is without hope. Do we need more hope in our own hearts? Do we need more hope in our families? Do we need more hope in this community? We have to turn away from cynicism. Cynicism is actually the result of secularism. It's the pretense that there is no God. Or at least he is off limits in public conversations and polite company. Secularism offers no firm hope and soon produces cynicism and cynicism begins to pick at the basic pillars and long-standing givens of human life one after the other, it breaks it down. It breeds disengagement. It did on the island of Crete in Titus's day, and it does in our day. But Paul writes with a countercultural message, just as countercultural today as it was then. Hope, genuine hope, objective hope. Hope that affects productive lives. What cynicism gets right is that we indeed live in a fallen world. Our world is not what it was in the beginning. Our race sinned. Sin entered in and remains. Evil is afoot. We're born into sin. And if there is no God, then there is indeed a lot to be cynical and hopeless about. On this day, 21 years ago, our nation nation was changed. And the impact will continue to ripple through decades. When we experience violence and tragedy in our world, There's a gut reaction in us to batten down the hatches, ramp up the security for our loved ones, and get cynical. I get that. I've been there. Because this world can be a terrible place. But God. But God so loved this world that instead of cutting himself off from us, he did the unthinkable. He gave his own son to answer the penalty of death 
But God so loved this world that he gave the Prince of Peace, the light of this world, love incarnate, to be crushed by the sin and shame and violence and evil of this world. Jesus was despised and rejected. But don't forget, we can't forget that hope wins. Jesus conquered sin and death. He came back to life and has given us his spirit as we wrestle with pain and loss and needless violence in this world. Don't stop there. I'm wrestling too. We can't stop in the wrestle and get resigned and cynical. We can't stop there. Jesus did not stop there. God does not stop there. He is on a mission to seek and save that which is lost. Anyone feel lost this morning? Maybe just a party feels lost. He is on mission. He is active and moving. He is on mission to seek and save that which is lost in us. How can we be leaders who live in this world witnessing and knocked to our knees by the violence and then happily open our homes to others to engage our families and our community? How can we be leaders who find satisfaction and fulfillment in our marriages? How can we be leaders who cultivate homes that create security, belonging, and identity for our kids so they aren't looking for it in wild ways? Because of what we believe. We believe that this world is messed up in many ways and that there's a lot to be critical of. And we believe that the story doesn't end there. We believe in redemption. We believe in change. We believe in grace. We believe in Jesus. We have hope, genuine hope. We reject cynicism, and we have hope. Amen? Can the worship team make their way up? As we quiet ourselves in his presence, will you guys just take a minute? I'm just going to ask some questions. Is there anyone here this morning that would say, Man, God, I need you to check my heart. I think I have judged others for their bias and pride, but maybe mine has gone unchecked. I want to see my family the way that you do. I want to see this community with your perspective. I want to be a part of your church in this world. As we sit here this morning, would you be willing? Would you be willing to come to the table of hope? A table that's prepared for us by Jesus, our good shepherd, right in the midst of our cynical society. Would you be willing to leave your cynicism behind? 
Would you be willing to leave your frustration and your anger and come to a table of hope? A place that will ask you, will you walk the path of unbelief leading to cynicism and unproductive lives? Or will you be the people of faith who have his never lying promises and a solid hope that frees us from ourselves to do good for others and be genuinely productive in this world? Will you come to the table of hope? Father God, we hear your invitation this morning. We hear your invitation. Lord, as we sit here in your presence, we make the decision of whether we're gonna come and say yes to you or to hold on. God, I pray that we would have the courage to surrender our pain. God, in those places that we don't trust you, will you please show us how to trust you? God, in those places that are broken, will you come and heal us? Because Father, more than anything, we want to be on mission with you because we can see like you can see that this world is lost and they desperately need hope. And it's been your crazy plan to do that through us. And so Father, we say yes to you. We say yes to coming to the table of hope. We say yes to being filled by your spirit. We say yes to not knowing what the future will hold, but knowing that you are in the midst and that's enough for us. Pray you would do this work in your name. Amen.